strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Hi, and welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I am going to tell you a story that happened in England, 1858. I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to give it away to you, Robin, because I want to see your reaction Oh, great! when the turn comes. Hopefully I can find a way to name this without giving it away on the actual. But I want you to know what it is, but I don't want you to know what it is. I'm intrigued. Because it's really fun. Anyway, fun is the wrong word. Fun is the wrong word. Interesting. It's interesting. (sighs) I'm always in for adventure with your freaking stories. On Sunday morning, October 30th of 1858, the deaths of two young boys, 9 and 11 years of age, were reported to Borough Street Station in Bradford, England, which is just west of the city of Leeds. These two children had experienced severe diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting with drowsiness just prior to their deaths. Initially, cholera was blamed, as there was no evidence of foul play. This was during the third cholera pandemic that took the lives of over 23,000 people in Great Britain. Oh, wow. But as the day went on, more deaths were reported. And with such sudden and violent illness in so many households within the district, it seemed as if a plague had hit the neighborhood. And it was traveling and killing quite swiftly. People were dying left and right, and even more were ill. Immediately, police officers started an investigation. They questioned the ill and the families of those who had died. They tried to get an idea of what the people had been doing that day and within the days prior. They wanted to know where they had gone, what they had eaten. And these questions led investigators to discover that all of the victims had one thing in common. They realized that they, all of those who had fallen ill or died had eaten a peppermint humbug that day. It was the candy? And even worse... <laughs> They had all purchased the candy from the same vendor. Oh, no. Peppermint humbugs are peppermint candy striped. They yeah, talk about yeah. it. They talk about it in Harry Potter a lot. They yeah. call it a muggle candy in yeah, Harry Potter. Yeah, the, the, the very large round balls. All kinds of shapes and colors mm-hmm. of them. I, I did a bit of research. There are black and white striped ones, red and white striped ones, green and white striped ones. Sometimes there are balls. Sometimes they're flat. Sometimes they're that um like rectangle but rounded a lot of yeah, shapes and sizes to yeah. peppermint humbugs. I learned quite a bit about it. Anyway. Like barrel <laughs> shaped, right? Like yes. Like barrel? Yes. These particular peppermint humbugs were sold by William Hardacre, also known as Humbug Billy. He, op- <laughs> <laughs> he operated a candy stall at the Green Market in Bradford, England. Police descended upon Billy's house and as all leads had taken them straight to him. Humbug. When the police found Humbug Billy... He was also severely ill. It seemed that Hardacre had gotten high on his own supply and was suffering the consequences. He got high. Oh, my God. What was in it? Oh, my God. When questioned, he told investigators that the candy had come from Joseph Neal, where he always purchased his stock. See, Billy didn't actually make candy. He was the middleman. He just sold it. He bought it and sold it. Yeah. He bought it from someone. He bought it from the candy maker and then he sold it at Mm -hmm. his stand. So our boy Billy bought all of his candy from Joseph Neal. It was Joseph Neal that made the candy that was linked to the deaths of 21 people and the illnesses of over 200 within a 24-hour period. 24 hours. The candy maker and wholesale confectionery dealer had a workshop that was just a few hundred yards north of Green Market. In 1858, 
sugar was quite expensive. Mm -hmm. And Neil had a habit of swapping out some of the sugar for what was called daft. Oh, my God. Daft was a product similar to Plaster of Paris. Yes. (laughs) That was made of powdered gypsum and cost approximately one-twelfth of the price of sugar. At Neil's house, this is what the officers found. They found Mm -hmm. that the candy was made with this uh, daft to reduce the amount of sugar that was needed. Oh, my God. That's ridiculous. He said that the daft was Derbyshire spar and that 12 pounds of this substance had been mixed in with 400 pounds of sugar to bring down the expense of making the candy. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pie, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Try to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to (laughs) podcasts on. Yeah, podcast, homecasts. Your your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. So sugarcane, of course, you know, does not grow in Britain. So it was very expensive as the climate to grow sugar is not available in Great Britain. So it was a luxury item at this time, and it was only affordable by the super rich. It was sold at two shillings a pound or approximately 50 pounds in today's money. Sugar was so valuable at the time that it was actually kept in locked caddies. In the 17th and 18th century, sugar plantations in the West Indies supplied Britain with sugar, and trading posts such as Bristol grew rich on the trade. By 1750, there were over 120 sugar refineries operating in Britain, but even with this many, they could only produce 30,000 tons of sugar per year, so the prices were very high. In 1815, the tax from sugar in Britain was a staggering 3 million pounds. Oh, oh my God. So, I'm surprised. I'm, not, I'm actually not surprised. Right. So it's very expensive. So there's, you know, you, you you kind of get why they need to, like, cut some of the costs. So as the price of sugar was so prohibitive, it was often mixed with cheaper substances called daft. And then this inferior sugar would be sold to the working classes. Daft was a mixture of a variety of different substances from powdered limestone and plaster of Paris. Not particularly tasty, but certainly safe. This type of manipulation of food was quite common at the time, and the use of nicknames such as DAF were used to hide what they were truly doing. They didn't want to be like, we're mixing it with Plaster of Paris, (laughs) you know, but what they're mixing it with is Plaster of Paris. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been in a middle school art class, you know what Plaster of Paris is. It's that like white powder, you mix it with water, you like put it on something, it becomes crunchy. I guess it makes things crunchy. So I guess it's probably pretty good in making candy. Probably tastes like shit, but if you mix it with enough sugar, who cares? So it was then that Dr. John Bell and Felix Remington, who were chemists, tested the candy. They identified and confirmed that the humbugs contained arsenic. It was estimated that each piece of candy contained 14 to 15 grains of the deadly substance, and 4.5 grains 
was recognized as the lethal dose. Whoa. So this had each piece of candy had roughly three times the lethal dose in it. Of arsenic. Yes. Enough peppermint candies were sold by Hardacre to kill at least 2,000 people. Holy shit. And you know what? I just feel bad because he's also suffering from it because he didn't know. He didn't know. He's just, he's like. So like, oh, we're going to get this guy. Oh, oh, well, never mind. Because he's obviously, he obviously it, didn't do anything on purpose. And this kind of the story, like they find him. Yeah. He's clearly sick. So clearly he didn't he, know. Yeah, okay. He didn't know. So let's go to the next guy. So they go, go to, to the, the next, next guy. guy. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial membership. So go to audibletrial.com slash notorious narratives to browse Audible's unmatched selections, such as Ellis Hoffman's Museum of Extraordinary Things, a book that fuses fiction and history, set in Coney Island with a mystery surrounding the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. It's right up my alley. So go to audibletrial.com slash notorious narratives to get a free title today. It's that simple. The candy maker, Joseph Neal, denied any wrongdoing, stating that he had purchased the daft from the druggist the same as he always did. He denied any intention of harm and that he had no idea that the candy contained poison. I mean, he didn't think that someone called the druggist might have... I mean, the druggist, uh, you know, the pharmacist. The I know, I know. place with bins of shit. But more importantly, I'll get there. So I'm telling you, though, these police officers were pretty badass. I know. Because they are doing this in a 24-hour period. They are on I mean, the clock. I want to give a praise to right? all of police officers that were in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because they, they were, were working with nothing. They, they had nothing. And I don't think they ever slept. No. It seems that they didn't. But I'm telling you, these guys, 24 hours, they've tracked down, okay, all these Not people are Not only the distributor, the maker, but also the druggist that supplied it. In 24 hours. It's yeah, insane. Well, it's I mean, insane. it's hard for me to get an email response in 24 hours, you know? Exactly. Congratulations. I certainly don't respond to anyone in 24 hours. So <laughs> so these officers, you know, now they've seen the candy maker. The candy maker says, I don't know, man. I got my stuff from the same place I always do. All right. So now we're moving up the chain. The druggist. Now we're going to the druggist. So next they move on to the druggist, Mr. Hodgson. It is here that the case is finally solved. They discovered that a newly hired assistant had sold 12 pounds of daft to the candy maker. Investigators said, okay, well, show me the daft. And he points to a bin of white crystalline odorless powder. Unlabeled? That is unlabeled. Yep. Mr. Hodgson, who runs the, the apothecary or pharmacy or whatever we're going to call this, is horrified and quickly told the officer that 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 the contents of that barrel are not daft, but in fact they are arsenic. Why would he have a giant bag of arsenic? Who would have a giant bag of arsenic? But more importantly, this is just a story of why life sucked really bad before the brother P Touch label maker. P Touch man, label makers. I'm telling all the you, way. one label could have saved twenty lives. Or you know what? One Magic label. markers. Thank you, Sharpie. Just a fucking <laughs> pen. It's it's in a bag. I'm sure you could have written something on it. So even more so, they they find out that right. But he actually didn't even make the candy himself. He actually employed another person to make the candy. So it's another Appleton. person. 
And Appleton was the one who used the powdered arsenic in the production of the peppermint humbugs. So Neil purchased the what he thought was daft and gave it to Appleton. Right. And he's like, hey, can you make my peppermints? And so Appleton the candy maker, made, the cape, made the candy, passed it back to Neil, who sold it to the Hardaker, hum, who sold it to all the people. Yeah. And a partridge and a pear tree. Got it. I'm just, I'm doing a family tree right now. There's mind. a lot That's of it. names, a lot of people involved in this situation. I think that. Honestly, this is the true. Like this is manufacturing. People. This is the supply chain of manufacturing. <laughs> so he had given the daft to Appleton and he had used that to make the peppermint humbugs. And he had failed to notice that the candy looked slightly different than it normally did when it came out. But after making the sweets, Appleton fell ill for many days. No one connected his illness at the time to the candy he was making. So the mistake in the ingredients continued on unnoticed. Oh, there was fingers. Right? If he, Hardaker. If he handmade it. Do you think if he handmade it, it would seep through his skin? Yeah. And Hardiger, who was selling the candy, thought the sweets looked a little bit different than they normally did. But he was a shrewd businessman and he negotiated a lower price by complaining about the product. If he's going to buy it at a lower cost and sell it at the same price, he's going to make a huge profit. Yes. Yes. So that Smart Saturday man. night. Smart man. That Saturday night. Hardacre sold five pounds of the candy to unsuspecting customers. Oof. The peppermints were one <laughs> were one ounce apiece and came in packages of 10 to 12, which is why so many in a single family fell ill from them. The district bellman woke most people up on, on Sunday around midnight with his warning cries about the dangerous candy. And by Monday morning, the entire district knew that the candy was poisoned. So not only did these cops figure it out, they solve it, and then they send someone out to warn everyone about the candy. And by Monday morning, everyone knows not to eat peppermint humbugs. I have to say that, like, typically when I look back, it especially – the legal system in mid-19th century Britain, I'm, I'm typically overwhelmed by how efficient are, it was. Based okay. on the resources, <laughs> they are out of control. So – on the following Monday morning, so now we're on November 1st, William Goddard, the druggist assistant who sold the arsenic, was facing court charges. And by the end of the court trial, Charles Hodgson, Joseph Neal, and William Goddard were all charged with manslaughter through negligence. Oh, no. So this is like Monday morning. So this happened Saturday night. Monday morning, these guys are in the courthouse. However, both Neil and Goddard were discharged without a blemish, and Hodgson was later acquitted. So the case of the poisoned peppermint humbugs became well-known as just a series of tragic errors. Mm -hmm. In the mid-19th century, though, death from poisoning appeared prominently in mortality statistics. So when you think of poison, Robin, what do you think of? I mean, before you said anthrax. So we have anthrax, we have arsenic. What else do you think of? Poison? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking rat poisoning. Which is? I don't know. What is it? Typically, I think it's strychnine. Mm. You have cyanide, mercury. But arsenic was certainly one of the primary culprits during that time. But other equally toxic chemicals, such as nux vomica, ergot, oxalic acid, and opium were becoming increasingly available and undoubtedly involved in many poisoning episodes. So where did people get poison? Why was it so readily available? The druggist. I mean... If you wanted an unlabeled bag of stuff on the floor, the only way that a person I think could get poisoned now would be through a series of very sketchy transactions or by using a product that contained it in a different way than it was supposed to. But 
the ability to acquire poisons was at this point just really becoming a major issue. So this was a major issue that was already well known. And the lack of regulation regarding hazardous materials and medications had just recently been brought to the attention of the public by the newly incorporated pharmaceutical society. They were concerned about the unregulated poisons, and together with doctors, they had been lobbying for the government to introduce legislation to help control these substances. The Arsenic Act was passed in 1851, which was the first measure introduced in an attempt to control the sale of poisonous substances. A record of the transaction had to be made in a book with both the vendor and purchaser that they would sign it, but the act only applied to arsenic. Nothing else? Nope. Sales were not restricted to chemist or druggist, and it appeared that any trader could sell it, provided that a record was kept. Arsenic, which was not used in medicine, was to be distinguished from other white powders by coloring it with soot or indigo. Mm -hmm. So they were like, okay, you can keep it white if you're going to use it in medicine, but if you're going to do it in something else, it needs to be a dark color. color. So this is basically what the act is saying that they have to do. So, you know, it it certainly left something to be desired, Mm -hmm. but it was a very first step. But in retrospect, it was wholly inadequate, as was clear in this case, because this case took place seven years after the Arsenic Act. Indeed, chemists and druggists were sellers of arsenic and other substances that were newly emerging in the marketplace as medicinal products of the day. Information relating to toxicity was not well known or even established. But the fact that such sales appeared to be made so willy-nilly had not escaped the public's criticism. The Reverend Robert Montgomery, writing in the London Times at the time, denounced chemists as venal poison mongers who traffic for pence in murder. (laughs) So despite its shortcomings, the act was an important one in the history of pharmacy in Britain for a variety of reasons. The need to make such a start in legislation to ensure proper control over the sale of poisons was an important one. So this incident in Bradford, England, along with other poisoning, accidental poisoning incidents, because this is not the only one of its kind. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, So between these two things, it became very obvious that more needed to be done. And in 1868, the Pharmacy Act was passed, which recognized the chemist and druggist as the custodian and seller of certain poisons. But other people couldn't sell them. Essentially, they have a great responsibility, right? So it's like basically, it's like, hey, you are the person in charge of this material. They really need to know what the fuck they're doing, right? The Bradford poison scandal led to new legislation in order to protect the public from any similar tragedy. And in 1860, the Adulteration of Food and Drink Bill changed the manner in which ingredients could be used, mixed, and combined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the UK Pharmacy Act of 1868 introduced more stringent regulations regarding the handling and selling of named poisons and medicines by druggists and pharmacists. Which, so the handling and selling basically was like, hey, you ding-dongs, you gotta label shit. Yep. So, I mean, honestly, everywhere you go is labeling, not just drugs and I mean, like that, but food, beverage, everything must be labeled. I of mean, of course, I mean, you and I working together, sugar and salt. I'm telling you, you put them next to one another and you're bound to make a mistake. How many times have you done that baking or have heard about people doing a baking? I put salt in my coffee ones. Yeah. It's awful. Like, I mean, anyone can make a mistake. <laughs> and I think at that point in time, it wasn't even considered it was like why would a baker be purchasing anything from a druggist yeah but this series of circumstances including the high price sugar. of sugar and needing to sell the candy at a low enough price to be able to make a profit led to this set of circumstances that ended 21 people's lives and also i think that on like i'm i'm, I'm not 
sure about this, but during that time, the addition of baking soda was also a ingredient in some type of chemical reaction. So I think that only certain people actually sold baking powder as well. Probably. I mean, so that would make sense, right, if they were going there to get something like that. But at the end of the day, they're going there to get essentially plaster of Paris to put in the candy. It's just one small request. Just to make money. One small mistake caused the lives of... 21 people. And I'm sure there are many, many others. Yeah, yeah, that we don't know about. I mean, if I Googled it, I'm sure I would find a ton more. Yeah. And it's just like, I I understand this because coming from a background in wholesale manufacturing, I understand the process of your purchasing and all the ingredients labeled and how everything has to be labeled and everything has to have a still. Right. Well, and also to change the way a person does the, mm-hmm. their job oh like what do you mean you want this oh i have to look into it and so now they are going right. off and they are you want to... me to work harder yeah. i have to label everything in my mm-hmm. store and you know this wasn't even that person's store this is a guy who had just started yeah. a few weeks before so he's like oh it's this giant bin of white powder it that, looks, that like looks like it. sugar or whatever uh, and then you're like why would you carbonate? ever have a giant bin of arsenic i mean i don't understand i didn't look into the types of medications that are made with arsenic in 1858 England I probably should have maybe I'll do that really quickly just now arsenic was actually used to treat syphilis and psoriasis that's why there's just a big pack of it <laughs> oh my and that's God. why they were like oh yeah sure <laughs> oh lord anyway so that is the not so sweet story of the Bradford candy scandal just another notorious narrative thank you so much for listening If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.